Welcome to the Treeleaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is a Soto Zen Sangha available anytime, anywhere at treeleaf.org. Come sit with us. Welcome all of you. It is it is so good to see so many friends and old faces, new faces. Today marks the beginning of our ongo, our 90-day period of peaceful abiding, and it's also the start of our jukai preparations, sewing a raksu, reflecting on each of the precepts. And so it's a time for beginnings, realizing where we are, redemption, reflecting on the past. And I hope our talk today will do all of that. I hope to present um, a perspective on the world, our role in it, why the precepts are so important, maybe a little different than you often hear, but it's right at the heart of our Buddhist teachings. You see, uh, I'm going to cut to the chase and tell you where this talk is going. That's my bad habit. But uh, the last few weeks, you see, I've been talking in Zazen Kai about how there are so many problems in people's lives in the world that I wish I could fix, and I can't. No one can. I mean, maybe someone can, but I like to say that if you have a bad tooth, Zen won't do anything for it. You got to go see a dentist, you know. Uh, maybe it'll make you a little more peaceful and accepting of the pain, the throbbing, but no, uh, Zen's not going to cure your tooth, and it's certainly not going to cure the war in Ukraine. It's not going to cure my friend's cancer. It's not going to cure my other friend who lost someone they love recently, their broken heart. No, Zen is not going to solve death. The Buddha died. Didn't work for him. Dogen died. Didn't work for him. And we mourn them. Our hearts are broken when we suffer loss. So Zen cannot cure your problems. People come to this practice maybe thinking that they'll find the secret to make all blissful, peaceful all the time. And I'm telling you not. But before you lose hope, and I chase you all away, I also spoke just last week about how Zen cures all your problems. And yes, that incongruity is at the heart of our practice. For you see, we taste in the wholeness, the flowing of all things that we call emptiness, a place where there is no war, where coming and going, birth and death, are something like only one way to see things. The famous example, again, the wave rises on the water and eventually fades into the water. But the wave was the water flowing all along. So when the ocean is there before your little wave 
and your little wave rises on the ocean, it's still the ocean. And when your little wave returns to the ocean, you're gone, your wave is gone. But as you were the ocean all along, you've come and gone nowhere. And you are still flowing, flowing, flowing. You see, our practice helps us realize that we are not just these little things. We are not just these finite beings in a vast world, but we are this world. And as I often like to point out the tree, I see through the crack in the door, the mountain over there, all of you are each other in different guise. You feel like an isolated little being, but I tell you, the tree is you treeing, and you are the tree youing. That's the best way I can express it. And when times are really tough, I spoke about this last week, I said we can go deep, 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 profoundly, boundlessly deep into this place where there is no birth and death, there is no possibility of loss or gain, because it is so whole and flowing. It is what is called emptiness, but that's such a misleading name because it means the fullness, the completeness of everything moving on and on. But that's not what I'm going to talk about this week. This week's talk is perhaps the most profound medicine for the suffering of this world that Zen has to offer. And it's something so subtle and so easily misunderstood that you're going to have to listen carefully to what I'm saying here. Because it could come across wrong that I'm somehow saying that the ugliness is somehow a good thing. That is not what I'm saying, but I want you to listen cl cl closely. Imagine you looked at a forest and from a distance you see the magnificent and beauty of the forest, its green, its seasons. And you say nature is amazing, magnificent, and it is. But then we look closely at the forest and what do we see? A world of life and death, my friend. Combat and fighting for survival. Uh, a fertility, a fertility that depends on things springing up by other things falling and decaying. We see diseases, we see fire. I know we, we don't like to see the forest fires, but we, I think we all know at this point, we have understood the teaching that forest fires are part of the cycle of the forest. Everything plays a role. If you did not have life and death in the forest, there would be no life. There would be no change. It would be frozen, dead, barren earth. Well, this whole universe is a great forest. Another one, a garden, a garden. If you're raising a garden, it's, it's magnificent. Let's say tomatoes, but some of the tomatoes will be strong and, 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 and full, and some of them will wither on the vine. Some, some seasons will be full, a full, beautiful crop, and other years will be barely anything springing from the ground. But it's all the cycle of life. 
You could be a surgeon, for example, and you're treating your patient for cancer, maybe a bad heart, all the diseases that plague the body, and yet you can see in the human body what magic, what is a miracle, what is amazing to have this heart, these hands, this brain. Where did it come from, from that life and death that is this whole universe? Generation after generation struggling and struggling and this amazing, amazing creation has, has risen up. And so you can be a surgeon and look at that and say, the cancer is so terrible, but the entirety is magnificent. And if you did not have cancer in its way, if you did not have death, if you did not have people developing aging and sickness and bad hearts, you could not have the constant change, which is this world. It's a symphony. It's an art form. If you go to the theater, I use all these examples. If you go to the theater and all the stories were just simple, happy endings, like, like that children's show, we show a five-year-old, you would soon be bored. The magnificence of the theater, of, the, of, the, of watching films, is that they are about life and death and loss and gain and tears, war. We can look at something like um, Apocalypse Now, a, a, a masterpiece about war. Horrible. The horror, the horror. That's the, the famous line from it, right? Right? The horror, the horror. And yet the spectacle is magnificent. It is the creativity of a human mind, but I'm talking about the creativity and fertility of this world. So here's the chase we're going to cut to today. There are things in this world that break my heart and will break yours. People you love are going to die. Later, we'll be dancing a song in a hospital for sick children. Sick children, why? I tell you, if I was God, and I'm certainly not, not even close, I can't understand sometimes who built this place, but if I was God, the engineer or whatever, it might be a blind, but don't, I don't want to get into that. What I'm saying is we could have done without a few things, okay? We did not have to have sick children. There were other ways maybe, but that's my feeling. But anyway, they're there. The sick children, the war, the hunger, the poverty, the global warming, that this damage we do to ourselves. And I, I, the point of today's talk is that some of the Zen masters developed the ability to look at this thing, to look death and sick children and war right in the eye and say, it's terrible, it's terrible. The horror, the horror, it's beautiful, it's magnificent because it is the whole, because they can see the whole pouring into all the change, all the constant change. The Buddha said change is suffering, and it is suffering when we resist it, when we cannot, how to say, we do not like the change. But they say, I can hear the change as a kind of symphony, as a kind of artwork in which I can look at this and say, the terrible, terrible nature. Yesterday I posted photos of children going into their schools in Ukraine that had been burned out. It's in Washington's thread discussion. Go look at these photos, these little children standing in what was their school. The horror, and yet the beauty, 
the magnificent of the whole grand thing. And yet, this is where the precepts come. It is our duty to make this garden grow as beautifully and lusciously as we can. It is our duty, even though cancer is part of the, the body, to cure the disease we can, you see. Okay, that's where we're going to go. Sorry, gave you the end of the book before we even got into the story. Now, I'm going to start off with some amazing quotes by a teacher, uh, a Soto teacher in Australia, who I, I actually don't know that well. And I'd like to ask some of our Australian friends if they know him. He's not well known outside of Australia, but I, I've been reading just a little of his works. They're not widely read, I think. And it's solid Soto teaching. And in some cases, he expresses things in such beautiful way. From what I can see, uh, it's beautiful Soto luscious teaching. I, he's a little bit of, and also a posture fanatic, which I, I often wag my finger at those folks. But otherwise, he, he's great. So here, here's some of these quotes. And they only make sense, I think, from the perspective I just gave you. Number one, we are born anew only when we accept this actual world, which is so miserable, imperfect and rotten as as the most perfect, irreplaceable and infinite one. I repeat, when we accept this actual world, which is so miserable, imperfect and rotten as the most perfect, irreplaceable and infinite one. Now, don't. Get me wrong. He's not saying it's not miserable. He's not saying it's not imperfect. He's not saying the fruit doesn't sometimes go rotten. He's saying that's true. And yet, and yet, it's perfect, irreplaceable, and infinite. Next, I find infinite meaning, meaning in hunger and thirst, the shedding of blood and tears, sorrow and joy, birth and death, disease and old age. Isn't Buddhist, aren't we supposed to escape from all that? Aren't we supposed to find the secret to be away from old age, sickness, suffering? But he's saying, I find infinite meaning in these things and the hunger and the blood. A world without any problems or suffering or contradictions is as dead as a world made of vinyl and plastics which neither change their forms nor decompose in the ground. Now, something interesting at that ending there, we have a world where we're filling the oceans and the, the landfills with plastic, the fish, and us now are filled with this stuff. And he's saying he finds infinite meaning in this. And if, it, if we didn't, the world would be dead. But does that mean he's saying that it's okay to then put the plastics in the ocean? This is where you and I come in, my friend. He's saying this world of war and disease and pollution is magnificent. It's beautiful. It's because it's possibility, possibilities. And we are the artists. It's like a canvas. We cannot paint the whole picture, but we're one artist with one little brush. Everybody's painting together this magnificent canvas. Every star, every creature, every sentient being has a brush in hand, and we paint our little part. And he's saying the whole work that we are all painting together, every ant, every, every breeze is painting this picture, all of us together. You have a brush in your hand. All of it together 
is magnificent. And yet, and yet, we have a duty to paint, at least our portion, the most beautiful and balanced picture we can. He's not saying it's okay to put the plastics in the ocean. As a matter of fact, it's our job not to. It's our job. He says the, the war is magnificent because it's all magnificent. And yet it is our job to end the war, you see, to be people of peace. The disease is there only because there is life. Aging is only there because we live. And yet our job, if we can, well, let's cure some disease. Let people live a little longer, perhaps. We only have mouths because it's a miracle we developed to have these mouths and some people are hungry, but it's still a miracle that we have a stomach and a mouth to be hungry. Lovely, feed the people like that. Okay, let's keep going with this fellow. As the inevitable product of our ego, we now have wars, tragedies, precision instruments, political strategies, pollution, multinational corporations, and so on. That is the human world as it is. In such a world, we shed our blood and tears, often against our will. In such a world, our life is unfolding itself perfectly. Huh? Thus, we practice the great way. It's all perfect with the inequalities and the tragedies and the war. Yes, it is. It is because it's the great show. It's a great show. Okay. This is the play. This is the film, and this is what is being seen. Now, that's no excuse. Let's make a war world that's a little more just, peaceful. You see, this is where the precepts come in that you will be reflecting on. Now he talks about ourselves, our own lives. We look at ourselves the same way. It's just the same, not only looking at the world, but looking at what we did. Look at all the bad things that we do sometimes. I am sure that falling down into the karmic way, that means getting greedy, angry, doing violence to others, becoming jealous, right? I am sure that falling down into the karmic, karmic way is also meaningful for our lives. In order to wake up to our ultimate reality, we need first to lose our awareness at it. We have to first be confused in order to realize something. In order to find our true home, we must first travel the world. We must first go to hell to realize what it is not to be in hell. Maybe I would say that. The guy who hits rock bottom as an alcoholic is the first one who's going to say, hey, maybe this life is something more than I'm doing here. Maybe I can turn this around. So maybe he's saying you got to hit kind of rock bottom before you spring back up, some of us. If we had continued to live in paradise forever, we would never have recognized the miracle of our life. You know, there's the view if uh, you get reborn in Buddhist heaven and everything's just er everything you want, every dream comes true, right? And it's a kind of hell too, actually. You make no progress there. You, we got to be, to be a human being between heaven and hell is considered the best place in Buddhism to be because we're walking this tightrope where we get to determine and appreciate things that you cannot appreciate if, if in hell and you cannot appreciate in a world where every wish comes true. We're living in this fertile place of possibilities, you see, where the wheel is in our hand and we get to steer where we wish, like that. 
Okay, anyway, I'm going to maybe skip a couple here. You attempt to be better. In fact, there is no such thing as better. That sounds like uh, homeless Koto Sawaki says that kind of thing all the time too, right? But does he mean that we don't keep trying to be good or to be better? No, no. Please try to be a good, decent, balanced, helpful human being. Please try to make the world better. By the way, the world can never be better because it's magnificent and terrible. <laughs> the world will always be terrible, my friends. It's called Samsara. We cannot perfectly fix this place. It's too wild. It's too much possibilities and, and growing. One thing we can see about the universe now, I think we can all agree, it's endless possibilities of fertile growth. And that's always going to be going sometimes in ways we love and sometimes in ways we don't. It can never be better or worse in a sense. It's just, it's magnificent, incredible self. All right? And yet you can make it better in some ways. You can make it better. Study the precepts. Give up the bottle. Give up the anger. Give up the uh, excess greed, the other addictions. Get, give up the jealousy. You can make things better, but things cannot be better. I maintain that your present imperfect state is much, much better and more full of grace than the perfect state you intend to achieve in the future. Our lives as we are practicing now are better than anything we will gain in the future. Therefore, you should switch the center of your being and hold attention from your dreams of the future and instead have your awareness of here and now. Now, you know, this is the thing. People think that be in the moment. Mindfulness is to concentrate on seeing something right now. I don't think this is the, the real meaning. It's like, I'm really seeing these eyeglasses. Wow, what eye, the amazing eyeglasses. I'm holding them in. I am totally in the moment seeing these eyeglasses. That's not what it means. It means let this crazy mixed up world, this moment be its moment of what it is. Stop looking for that future time when over the mountain when everything's going to be perfect. You're going to win the lottery every day. You're going to get every job promotion you want. No one in your family is going to get sick. No one in your family is going to die. There'll be no wars in the world. Actually, I think we can realize that one. Some of these we can actually realize. I look forward to a world with no war. But in the meantime, stop looking over there. Realize that this place right here, as it is, for better, for worse, its beauty and its horror is magnificent, is the wholeness is the entire dance of the universe playing out and dancing right here. And you, with your hands and your feet, are one of the dancers. Please dance as gracefully as you can. Okay, I'm going to skip a couple of these. You can read them later. or They're kind of uh, in the same vein. I'll give the last one here. Rain or shine, good or bad, hopeful or hopeless, satisfying or unsatisfying. We must give up such poor judgments of ourselves. Please just sit and sit and sit. Do not have any satisfaction or dissatisfaction, which is the Zen guy's way of sitting in the completeness and overriding satisfaction of all satisfactions of dropping need to be satisfied. You sit in such radical equanimity and acceptance that you accept this moment of sitting as it is and the whole world as it is. 
Just do it without any consideration for the effect. Okay. Now, we get to uh, the old guy here, Dogen, and uh, some of his perspectives on, on this, which, boy, you think you live in a tough world because you can't afford medical care and we have COVID? He lived in a world of plagues where there, there were no doctors, <laughs> okay? And uh, he died at age 55, considered a pretty old guy. So I called him old Dogen, all right? And you talk about wars, you had guys walking around with swords. They didn't like you, they, right like that, all right? You're, you're upset because your internet connection is not so good? They didn't have the internet, right? You're worried because uh, prices are going up in the grocery? They had famines. It was the 13th century in Japan for Buddha's sake, please no, okay? So anyway, we go back to these old guys and uh, there's one character here we're going to meet called the Ichantika. It's a nice Sanskrit word. And this is the, you know, the Buddhist uh, Mahayana taught that we all have Buddha nature within, right? We all have the possibility to become Buddha. And Dogen taught that when you act like a Buddha right now, you are bringing Buddha to life right now. Dogen didn't say, Buddha is just what we're going to become, let's say, I don't know, a million lifetimes from now. He said, right here, this life, this moment, this instant, when you act in a Buddha-like way, you're bringing Buddha to life with your hands and feet. When you give up the greed, when you act with generosity, when you feel peace instead of violence, that's what a Buddha does. You are bringing Buddha to life, okay? Anyway, but other people said, no, Buddha is someone we become eventually, right? That's uh, uh, some perspectives in Buddhism. In any case, the Inchantika is considered the guy who is beyond redemption. Such a loser, hopeless. He lacks Buddha nature. He will never become a Buddha without possibility of redemption. Dogen did not believe in that, and many Mahayanas did not believe. Even the most evil, evil, evil person in the world, we believe, is just poisoned by the greed, anger, and ignorance, which is a disease. Deep, 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 deep down, he is Buddha. There are no inchantikas. You could have done terrible things in the past, and in some ways you may not ever be able to fix them. And I'm not saying you should just forget about them. Some ways you may have done things 10 years ago, hurt people, hurt yourself, made great mistakes in life. I'm not saying that you just wash that away. You must recognize it, the horror, the horror of what happened. And yet, now is your chance right now to realize Buddha and to take a new course. Maybe if you damaged someone in the past, I, had a, I often tell the story, I had a friend who damaged his relationship with his children because of his alcoholism. They hate him. He was a terrible father, criminal. He never could completely fix that. When he got a little older, he established some kind of relationship with those kids. They understood a little, but the damage was done. He lost their childhood. He established a charity which helped, I don't know, a thousand children, save some of them from, from horrible households. He helped so many children with this charity he made to make up for the wrong he did. That's how we balance our karma. 
That's what you can do. So anyway, before I just talk on and on, Dogen in the Genjo Koan and the other piece we're going to read had this view as of a Buddha as not someone who's finished. Ignorant people think, oh, the Buddha's over there, and then I get to be Buddha. Everything will be perfect then. And Dogen said, no, a Buddha is someone who realizes the real meaning of living in the imperfection and turning it, bringing the light into it, making it good. For example, you could say, when I'm, I'm a sailor on the ocean, when I'm the Buddha sailing my boat, it will be smooth sailing every day, never a storm. And Dogen would say, no, the Buddha who sails, the master sailor knows that there are clear days, but on the stormy days, he knows how to batten down the hatches and turn the boat in a good way. The Buddha is someone who truly knows ignorance. Thus this passage from the Genjo Koan. Those who have great realization about delusion, about ignorance, are Buddhas. Those who are greatly deluded about what is enlightenment, realization, are just ordinary sentient beings. Further, there are those who continue realizing beyond realization, who are in delusion throughout delusion. The Buddha is a sailor who keeps sailing. He doesn't freeze in the ocean, put down the anchor and he's done. He knows wave after wave after wave after day after day. He knows Realization beyond realization in delusion throughout delusion, wave after wave. Get a sense of that? It's a, it's a something that the, the, it doesn't freeze, it keeps going, the voyage keeps going, but the Buddha realizes it's each new moment of each new inch of ocean we cross is another wave crossed. When Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you think it is already sufficient. When Dharma fills your whole body and mind, you understand that something is missing. A Buddha understands the imperfection of this world, that something is always missing. And he sees the perfection of that. He knows that this is a world where things are born and die, and yet he sees something that leaps through that. So now there's a section of continuous development beyond Buddha. This is the name of the next section. Now, how can you have it? You think, wait a second, I'm Buddha, I'm done. The cake is baked. No. Continuous development beyond, it's like, you know, in karate, my daughter's about to get her black belt, I think, in karate next year, right? And you think, oh, I'm done, I'm a black belt. No, to be a black belt in the martial arts, we have some martial artists here. This is the beginner. The true beginner, everything up to that point was getting ready to be the beginner. The black belt now must go out and do the actual, shall we say, combat with the world. A Buddha does not freeze. A Buddha is not an endpoint. A Buddha is a master of living the journey. So first, uh, Dogen quotes a fellow who talks about someone who's hopeless. And Dogen says, I'm giving the punchline again. And the, the first part is this master who said there's this hopeless individual and master said, no, his very imperfection and hopelessness is where he finds the light, is where he finds his brilliance. Okay. Master Koboku, 
once said to an assembly of monks, oh, good Zen students, like all of you, what is continuous development beyond Buddha? Let's say a single family has one child, but he is lacking the six sense organs and missing the seven forms of consciousness. It's a little confusing. Is he talking perhaps this could be an example in Buddhism of where we kind of put down people who were born with some kind of disability or defect? It could be. He's talking maybe this child was born blind, deaf, not clear what he means here. But something's wrong with this child. We have the, the senses. He's saying somehow the senses don't work. And the seven forms of consciousness, I'll get to that in a second, but something's wrong. Such persons are called inchantika, the hopeless, the irredeemable. Can't fix them. Karma left them, shall we say, on the garbage heap of life. They're the, the alcoholic we'll just forget about. Well, they're, they're, the, they're the, the evil guy we'll just say uh, he's beyond all hope. People who lack the seed of Buddha nature, that's what they are. When they meet Buddha, they kill the Buddha. There's no greater sin. To kill a Buddha, this is uh, to kill your Buddha, to kill your parents. To, to, it's, a, it's, a, it's the most serious of crimes. Okay? When they meet an ancestor, they kill that ancestor. He means literally. They're, they're terrible. Heaven refuses to accept them, and even hell will not let them in. This is how bad they are. Do any of you here have any idea of such a person? That kind of person is dull-witted, always confused, always in a daze. He babbles like an idiot in his sleep. Okay? Sounds terrible. Mr. Dogen then turns around and goes, no, that is the soil for Buddhahood. You cannot have a garden or a forest that blooms without shit in the soil. That is the fruit is the dead bodies in the soil that turns to life. Dogen says there is no one hopeless. And he's talking about you and me too. Because my students will tell you I'm far from perfect. Ask my wife. Now, Dogen contacts. Lacking since six sense organs means exchanging the pupils with the fruit of the Bodhi tree the nostrils with hollow bamboo, the skull with an excrement spatula. Now, I looked up several commentators on this. No one can trace. He's quoting something maybe. No one's quite sure. I'm going to be guessing a little here, okay? I want to be honest with you. I'm 80% sure about some of it, okay? He's saying when you lack sense organs, you get the eyes of a Buddha. The seeds of the rosary is what he's talking about. The seeds of the Bodhi tree become your eyes. When your nostrils are filled with bamboo, I, it may be something like when you make a Buddha statue, they put in the bamboo to make the statue come to life. It's like actually the, you got a clay statue, but they put the bamboo in the nose to actually bring some spirit into the statue or maybe a dead body. They do that to let the dead body get out. Something like that. You know, they used to, when someone would die, they would put bamboo in the nose so there was an escape hatch for the spirit. Okay? Something, he's saying it's, it's a good thing. And when you're the skull used as an excrement shovel, he's saying you have such radical equanimity that you could take your own skull and use it to pick up 
dog poop, but you have such radical equanimity that you are a Buddha, you see. So he's saying it's a good thing, something like that. What is the principle of exchanging? Exchanging yourself means, it means the lack of six sense organs. We, uh, we, uh, it's a footnote. Listen to my podcast this week if you want to know why there are six sense, sense organs instead of five. There's the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, mind. We also consider the brain a sense organ because it lives in its own imaginary world. Like I see a tree outside with my eyes. That's the visual sense. But inside you might see a, an imagined tree. So we consider that a sense experience too. So that's why Buddhism talks about six senses. It's not about ESP like that. Okay, anyway, that was a footnote. It means the lack of six sense organs is a wonderful thing because we're, in Buddhism, we're always put, saying putting down the world of division, putting down the world of seeing things as separate. Since there is a lack of the six sense organs, we can pass through the blacksmith's furnace as a metal Buddha, emerge from the ocean as a clay Buddha, and rise from the flames as a woodwind Buddha. Now, he's quoting a, working from a famous poem by Master Joshu. Get the poem here. A wood Buddha does not pass through fire. It's going to burn up, right? Right? A golden Buddha will melt in a furnace, right? A clay Buddha is going to fall apart if you put it in water. So a true Buddha does not worry about the physical things, it just sits in silence. Sounds good. Good lesson. Very good. Nothing wrong with that. We just sit in silence beyond this world, beyond this body. Dogen says, no, 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 no. You get into this world of heaven and hell and you live. And this is where you realize the truth. A Buddha emerges from the fire. He said, we can pass through the blacksmith's furnace as the golden Buddha. The clay Buddha emerges from the ocean. The ocean with all its another place that looks beautiful on the surface, but boy, it's a place of life and death and storms and peace, right? We emerge from that as Buddha. We rise from the flames as the wooden Buddha. And yet we also are the Buddha who sits in silence. Okay, let me get to the end here. What is missing the seven kinds of consciousness? I looked at Okamura Roshi and some people, there's some debate about this too. It might sound that there's some defect because he's missing the seven consciousnesses, but I have to explain this. In Buddhist psychology, the seventh consciousness is actually the one called manas that creates the fundamental division between you and everything that's not you in the world. For example, I said, you see the tree outside or you see the table in your room. You go, well, that's the table. It's not me. I'm over here. Okay. That's your brain creating a model that, that goes, I end at the, the nose, everything beyond the nose, not me, everything behind the nose. That's me. Okay. Something goes on in the brain. There's a model that separates your you-ness from your everything, not you-ness. That's in traditional psychology, way ahead of its time, Buddhist psychology, 2,500 years ago, way ahead of its time, they said there was a mental process that creates this division between the you and the not you. And our practices in part is to reverse that pro process so that the hard border between the you and the not you softens or fully drops away. So you realize the tree is you treeing, the mountain is you who, let's see, Paul, hi, hi, Paul, give me a wave. Hi, Paul. Paul, the mountain is Paul mountaining. 
Paul is the mountain Pauling. Bion is Paul Bioning, etc., etc., etc. Okay? So to kill the seventh consciousness, actually a good thing. It is like a broken ladle. You are broken ladles. In Buddhism, what, what a broken spoon, what is more useless than a broken spoon, a broken ladle, right? We are all broken ladle labels. But Buddhism says that the whole of the universe flows into everything and makes it magnificent again. A broken spoon is a diamond, is a treasure. We are all broken spoons. If we can, we should fix them. We should mend them because who wants to be a broken spoon? But don't get me wrong. At the same time, even a broken spoon is a treasure. It is like a broken ladle. It's a good thing. They kill Buddha when they meet Buddha, because when they meet Buddha, they kill Buddha. There's a famous saying by Master Rinzai, when you meet the Buddha on the road, kill the Buddha. It doesn't mean literally kill the Buddha. A Buddhist monk would not do that. It's like, you know, you might as well kill your mother. Don't do it. Okay, we don't do it. The point is the child at some point must become independent. My kid is now 20 years old. He's off in college. He's, he's doing his thing. He killed me in a sense. Not literally, I hope, but you know what I mean. He's done with needing me as much when as he was five. We become our own Buddha. We bring Buddha to life. Like Dogen said, this is killing the Buddha, killing the Buddha as an image, as some ideal over there. We bring the Buddha to life here. And when we bring the Buddha to life here, we've killed that fake Buddha over there. Like that. They try to enter heaven. Heaven will be broken. If they move towards hell, hell is shattered. They're beyond heaven and hell. They're truly living life here. They go to hell to realize this magnificence, and then they emerge here in this world with all its horror, horror, and they can look at it and say, it is also, it's, it's, it's that, that theater that's terrible scenes of, in this theater, but the entire performance is magnificent. And guess what? The only difference is when the separation drops you're not just a spectator in the theater watching the show you are the theater the theater is you the show is you you are the show and every actor on the stage is you and other guys and you are them and yet that show is so heartbreaking sometimes so heartbreaking and yet you realize oh theater itself shakespeare tragedy and comedy horrible Beautiful, funny, but the whole of Shakespeare is magnificent, is it not? You are Shakespeare in other guys. Got it now? Whenever they meet someone, they smile foolishly, like the Buddha, you know, Mahakashapa smiled when the Buddha just held up the flower. They look at this terrible, tragic world, and as the tears come down their, 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 uh, their face sometimes, as their heart is broken sometimes, as they shake with fear sometimes, they foolishly smile. Now I think you understand. What are they smiling about? I hope after this talk you understand a little why they're smiling. What a show! What a show! What a magnificent, terrible, heartbreaking, astounding show this is. You see? They walk around in a dreamy daze. Master, we realize this world is kind of like a dream, a mind-created dream. 
But yet it's our dream, said Mr. Dogen, so dream it well. Dream it well. Don't make a nightmare. So anyway, this is the principle of mountains and rivers are unique in themselves. Everything is unique in themselves. You are unique in yourself as imperfect as they are. The whole bodies of jewels and worthless stones is smashed into hundred bits and pieces. Don't just seek the jewels and discard the worthless stones. All the stones and all the jewels are smashed together into this glistening powder that we toss into the air. It is all of it, all of it. The sharp stones that, that, that stab us and the round stones that are so smooth, it's all of it. You can't just have a world of round things. You need a world of sharp things too. And yet our job is to polish this world as best we can. Okay. I hope you got the sense of this. Okay. So uh, we end with a poem by Dogen, uh, uh, a poem by Dogen about the Buddha's time under the Bodhi tree, the realization. Now you got to know the story before the Buddha was a rich guy and he left that. And then he tried to do extreme forms of meditation to escape this world to get totally beyond this world. He went to deep, deep, deep places where even he wasn't conscious, almost like a, a coma-like state, a, a morphine, heroin-like place beyond this world. And he came back and he went, well, a nice place to visit. Not, that's not for me. Then he said, the body, I got to escape this body. So he starved himself to extremes, down to skin and bones. And he almost died, but he said, no, that's no freedom there. So he sat under a tree and he saw a star in the sky doing nothing. We see the Webb telescope now. They're magnificent stars, but it's just a simple star in the sky, just shining, not asking, am I the best star, the worst star? Am I a perfect star? What is the meaning of my shining? The star is just there shining. It's the morning. It's just the morning star shining under a tree that's just growing, not saying, am I the best tree, the worst tree, the ugliest tree, the most beautiful tree? It's just a tree growing. And Dogen's just, Dogen, Buddha, they're the same really, just sitting there, you too, all of, you, you too are this Buddha, just sitting there, seeing the star and the tree. And he said, I'm just going to sit like the star is shining just to shine, like the tree grows just to grow. I'm going to sit here just to sit, not asking is it the best or the worst sitting, not asking is there something else I should better be doing, not asking why I'm sitting to sit because this is what to do in this place of sitting. And it was complete. Thus this poem, after six years of bitter ascetic practice, he attained awakening in one sitting, glimpsing the ground with all its shit and all its dead bones and all its flowers blooming and all its worms and all its tomatoes and all its trees, right? Glimpsing the ground and arising. How laughable, how laughable. What is this broken ladle? Okay. My broken ladles. We have a few minutes. Any questions? Thank you for joining us for the Treeleaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is an online practice place for people who cannot easily attend a Zen center due to health, location, work, childcare, or family needs. We provide netcast Zazen, retreats, discussion, Jukai, the support of fellow practitioners, 
interaction with the teacher, and all other activities of a Zen Buddhist Sangha, all fully online, accessible anytime, anywhere, without charge. Come build the future of online Zen community and practice.